hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. One day, Jesus was praying alone. Only his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strongly warned them not to tell this to anyone. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. The elders will not accept him. The chief priests and the teachers of the law will not accept him either. He must be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. Then he said to all of them, Whoever wants to follow me must say no to themselves. They must pick up their cross every day and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it if someone gains the whole world but loses or gives up their very self? Suppose someone is ashamed of me and my words. The Son of Man will come in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Then he will be ashamed of that person. What I am about to tell you is true. Some who are standing here will not die before they see the kingdom, before they see God's kingdom. Amen. Well, it's great to be, be I have been here once before, I think, at least once before. Uh, for a Mark drama. Don't you remember, the, remember the Mark drama? And uh, yeah, we used to, uh, we came down here, learnt a little bit how to do that, and we saw it uh, being uh, played out in, in, in a number of different venues in Brisbane. Uh, with great, uh, it, it had great, it was a great evangelistic opportunity, I think, and uh, I think it's still going strong. Anyway, it's nice to be here tonight. I want us to do, you can see from the, the, the booklet what, where we're going. We're going to look at the three occasions when Peter contradicted Jesus. We know that he denied Jesus three times, but you may not realize, perhaps the penny hadn't dropped, but there are three very well-known passages where Peter actually says, no, Lord, no. And so that's, that's the thing that ties the three talks together. Uh, so the first passage we're going to look at is the passage that was just read from Luke chapter 9. You get this same uh, event described in Matthew and Mark as well. But we're looking at it in Luke, Luke chapter 9. Uh, apparently, um, Charlie Chaplin once entered a, a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest in Monte Carlo. And he came third. Which is a bit, it was rather bizarre when you think about it. I mean, how could he not look like himself? He's probably got one of the most famous faces ever, really, hasn't he, Charlie Chaplin? You can probably see him right now in your mind's eye. Well, something like that's happening here. It's kind of a bit like a, a lineup, it's like an identity parade. Jesus asks his disciples here in Caesarea Philippi, Who do people say that I am? And clearly, public opinion is divided. Some say John the Baptist, who was beheaded by Herod, and Herod had a guilty conscience, and 
presumably thought that somehow or other John the Baptist had come back from the dead to haunt him. I think they believed in, some of them anyway, believed in the transmigration of souls. And so there's some way in which I suppose that could have been possible. But I think it was more, uh, more the fact that uh, Herod was a bit spooked out. He had a guilty conscience. But that, that was the gossip on the street. Some said John the Baptist. Others thought Elijah. Uh, if you know your Bibles, you know that uh, Elijah was the, the only Old Testament prophet who never actually died. He was taken up in a fiery chariot. And the Jews believed that before the Messiah returned, before the Messiah showed up, uh, Elijah would come back. Others were saying, well, he's obviously speaking with authority. He's, he must be another prophet, one of the prophets. Uh, just like today, um, people like to speculate about, about Jesus and voice their often uninformed opinions about Jesus. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Uh, Jesus asks them there in verse 20. And that's a, that's a, a different question, isn't it, when you think about it? It's, it's a much more personal question. He's not asking them now to voice their opinions He's asking them to um, commit themselves. See, if I were to ask you, um, who did Australia vote for at the last election? It wasn't that long ago. You probably remember. It was Anthony Albanese and uh, the Labour Party. But if I were to ask you, and, and who did you vote for? That's a different question, isn't it? That's a far more personal, um, far, far, far more intrusive sort of question. You might want to say to me, well, mind your own business. It's a secret ballot. I don't have to tell you who I voted for. You see, it may, you may well have an opinion. You, may, you might be quite happy to talk about politics in general and Australian politics, but when I ask you who did you vote for, your answer to that question will reveal something about you. It's, it's a much more personal question. It doesn't just ask for your opinion. It's asking you to reveal your convictions. And Jesus asks them that question. Who do you say that I am? That's what he's after here, you see. Never mind the gossip on the street. Never mind all those documentary or mockumentary uh, programs on SBS. Never mind uh, public opinion. Never mind what others are saying. Who do you say that I am? And it's, it's, a, it's a rather a strange question when you think about it. Uh, these guys have been with Jesus now for about three years. Imagine if you'd been to uni for three years and you come to your final exam and uh, there's only one question on the paper set by your senior lecturer and it's, who do you think I am? You'd think you'd had a nervous breakdown, wouldn't you? Or imagine that uh, Pete's been here about two, three years. Imagine if he were to stand up here on Sunday and say, look, I've been here with you for three years. I want you to ask you just one question. Who do you think I am? You think it's probably time we sack the selection committee. And look for another pastor. <laughs> Jesus asks these uh, disciples. They've spent three years with him. They've, they've heard him teach. They've seen his miracles. They've had intimate personal conversations with him. For three years they've lived night and day with him. And after those three years he says. I just want one question for you. Who do you say that I am? Anyone else asking a question like that would lose all credibility, don't you think? Every other 
religious leader, every other religious figure that you can think of, if they're going to have any credibility, has to point away from themselves. The most they can say is, well, that's the truth as I understand it, or this is the truth, follow that. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I'm the truth, follow me. To have any credibility, they have to, whether they might be egotists, there are a lot of them out there, but to have any credibility, to have any following, they have to, they have to point away from themselves. But Jesus points to himself. I'm the truth, he says. Follow me. So, what is your answer going to be to this question? Uh, maybe you're not yet a Christian. And, and, and if that's the case, then this is a question that you must find an answer to. Who do you say that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is? This historical figure who uh, is right there at the center of human history. You can't ignore him. Who do you say that he is? And if you really want an answer to that question, well, you're in the right place. This is a church that can help you with that. There are Christianity Explored courses, that sort of thing. I'm sure there are people here who would like to sit down and read the Bible with you. There are many ways in which this church, I think, can help you, if you're not yet a Christian, to get an answer uh, to that question for yourself. But even if you've been a Christian here for, for many years, it's still a question uh, for you too, isn't it? You know, in, the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, there's a scene where Lucy says to Aslan, Aslan, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, Aslan says. Not because you're bigger? No, says Aslan. Every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. Isn't that how it's meant to be? Let me ask you, my friends, are you, are you growing in your appreciation of who Jesus is? Is he growing bigger as you grow older? Is he bigger now than he was when you first believed? Notice how Peter answers this question here in verse 20. Who do you say that I am? And, and speaking for them all, he's the spokesman of the 12. He says, you are the Christ. You are God's long-promised Messiah. God's king, God's universal ruler. The one who is going to bring in God's everlasting kingdom. You're not a prophet, you're the subject of prophecy. You're the one to whom all the prophets pointed. The one who's going to turn the tables on Satan. The seed of the woman. Remember that very first gospel announcement in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You're the seed of the woman. You're the, the one who's going to be born into the human race, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He'll bruise your heel, but with the bruised heel of your crucified humanity, you will crush his head. You will stamp on his head. You will destroy Satan. You're the seed of the woman. You're the, you're the, the seed of Abraham, the one in whom all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. That's who you are. You're the son of David who is going to destroy all the enemies, of the, the ancient enemies of the human race and bring in God's everlasting kingdom. You are the Christ, the Messiah. It's a great confession, isn't it? And it's a confession that we must all make. It's, it's as simple as that, really. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, is to say Jesus Christ. Not as a swear word. But to think about what you're saying and to think, Jesus, that's his human name, Jesus of Nazareth. 
this, this historical figure, uh, and we have the, the, the testimony to him in the Gospels. To, to, to look at those Gospels and say, this, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. If you can say that, Jesus Christ, that is, that is a confession of faith. And Jesus says, Peter, you didn't learn that in Bible college. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You didn't learn that in Bible. I can't remember how the, the verse. It, but the Holy Spirit, my Father in heaven, told you that. And on this confession, I'm going to build my church. Not on Peter. Not, not on Peter, the personality, the man. He was pretty wobbly. But, but on the confession that he's just made, the Holy Spirit-inspired confession that Jesus is the Christ. He says, on this, I will build my church. It's a great confession. And it, it, if you can say that and mean it, then it makes you a Christian. It's a great confession. But you notice it's followed by great confusion. Did you notice that? Did you see that there in verse 21? Because no sooner do those words come out of his mouth that Jesus strictly warns them not to tell this to anyone. Now, why? Great confession. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on, on this. And then he says, don't tell anybody. Why? When the theologians talk about the messianic secret, there's all sorts of theories and, and uh, ideas about why. But really, in the end, it's, 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 the reason, I think, is simply this, that they only had half a gospel. They knew who he was. Clearly, they knew and they understood that, that this, they understand who, who he is, but they don't really yet understand what he has come into the world to do. And so Jesus introduces the cross into the conversation. You look at verse 22, and there's, it's like the Tasmanian weather. You know, one minute it's uh, the sun is shining, the next a cold front is approaching. And uh, there's a change here, a distinct change. It becomes distinctly chilly at this point, doesn't it, in the conversation. Look at verse 22. The Son of Man, he says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So if Jesus is who Peter says he is, two things must happen. Jesus must die, and you must die. And there's a must. There's a cross for Jesus, and there's a cross for you if you want to be one of his followers. So, so let's just look at that now, and, and let me just speak to you first of all about uh, Christ and his cross. And then I'll talk to you about you and your cross. But let's think first of all about Christ. And his cross. We've sanitized the cross, haven't we? Uh, we've removed the blood and the gore. We've polished it up. We've made it into a logo. Or worse still, a piece of jewelry. But remember, it's this, this is a bloody execution, a violent, cruel death. It was so horrendous that Roman citizens weren't even allowed to witness it. As Lord MacLeod of Iona famously said, uh, Jesus died on a rough wooden cross between two thieves, not in a cathedral between two candlesticks. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be crucified. 
rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers. There's a must about it. He must be killed. And that's too much for Peter, because Matthew tells us in his account that that Peter took him aside and, and, and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he says. That will never happen to you. Isn't it interesting? Out of the same mouth, the same man, one minute he says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven, I'm going to build my church on that. This is the the, the rock on which I'm going to build my church. What a great confession. And in the next minute, out of the same mouth, he's mouthing the propaganda of hell. He says, that's never going to happen to you. I'm not going to allow that to happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. All in a moment. Isn't that ironic? See, I suspect when, when Peter said to Jesus, this will never happen to you, it was as much to save his own skin as it, as it was uh, to protect Jesus. Peter wanted, see, Peter wanted to take the cross out of Christianity. And uh, a lot of people want to do that, don't they? I always remember reading years ago, uh, uh, I think it was Niebuhr, who was a kind of liberal theologian, but he said something uh, many, many years ago. Now he said, people today want a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's liberalism. That's, that's where uh, a lot of churches are right now. They want to take the cross out of Christianity. John Stott says, the voice of Peter is louder in today's church than the voice of Jesus. But there's no Christianity without the cross. It was a bizarre moment this morning when we woke up and heard the news about the Queen's passing. And uh, on the the television there was a, a, a shot of King Charles III, it takes a bit of use, getting used to it, doesn't it? He's now King Charles III. The queen is dead, long live the king, God save the king. And uh, soon, before very long, after the funeral, I'm sure, and down the track, they're going to take him to Westminster Abbey and they're going to crown him. They're not going to take him to Pentonville Prison and execute him. But for Jesus, do you see, his crucifixion was his coronation. Remember when Pilate asked him at his trial, are you a king? And he said, he answered, my kingdom, I am a king. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not a king in the way that you understand. My kingdom is not of this world. And within hours, they, they, they nailed him to a tree and rammed a crown of thorns down on his head so that the blood was pouring down his face. And that crown of thorns became his royal diadem. And they wrapped a purple robe uh, around his lacerated back. And they put a fragile reed in his hand and, and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. But that reed is the scepter of his power. And they fastened him to a rough wooden cross. And that cross is the throne from which he rules the world right up to the present time. His crucifixion is his coronation. See, God's kingdom comes not with pomp and circumstance, not by military might or political maneuvering, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And it has to happen that way. There is a must about it. Not a maybe or a might be, but a must. Holman Hunt has a famous painting with Jesus as a boy in the carpenter's shop. And uh, resting in the doorway, Jesus there as a boy in his father's carpenter's shop, resting in the doorway with the sun behind him, casting the shadow of a cross across the floor in front of him. I don't know whether Holman Hunt was a Christian or not, but he certainly had some insight into the gospel at that point, I think. You see, the cross was always there. Imagining turning up to a a baby shower with some embalming fluid. But that's what the wise men did, didn't they? With their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh at Jesus' baby shower. Myrrh is what you use to anoint a, a body. Remember Simeon's words to Jesus' mum. This child is set for the rising and falling of of many Israel, uh, and a sword will pierce your soul. Think of him at the age of 12. Imagine a little 12-year-old boy, not yet into puberty. And he's up there in the big city, in the big smoke, and his parents lose sight of him. They don't know where he's gone. They're on the way home, and they suddenly realize, where's Jesus? And they frantically go looking for him. You can read about it in Luke chapter 2. And eventually they find him. Where do they find him? In the temple. Talking with the, uh, the leaders, the religious leaders and the theologians of the day. Uh, and, and you remember what he says to them? He said, didn't you realize I'd be here? Didn't you realize that I must be about my father's business? What is his father's business? Well, he's in the temple. And it's Passover. And he's surrounded by all the paraphernalia of animal sacrifice. This is why I came into the world. This is my father's business, he said as a 12-year-old child. He always knew. It was always there before him, do you see? Mark Twain said, uh, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Well, Jesus always knew why. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He knew as he grew up and as he was taught the scriptures, as he learnt the Psalms, he, he knew that he was the fulfillment of all that. Didn't you know that I'd be about my father's business? Age 12, <laughs> the shadow of the cross was there. And you remember as you read through the Gospels, particularly John's Gospel, he keeps on saying, you know, at various junctures, uh, that my hour is not yet. My hour is not yet, the time has not yet come, until eventually in the Garden of Gethsemane, the time comes. The time comes for him to lay down his life, and he sweats great drops of blood to the ground as he faces that prospect, as he sees before him that cup of God's wrath that he has to drink on our behalf. See, the cross lay like a shadow across his entire life. And it lies like a shadow across the pages of the, of, of, the, of the Old Testament scriptures, doesn't it? It's always been there in the plan and purpose of God. This is no tragic accident that overtook him. It was always meant to be in God's plan and purpose. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no other way for sinners to be saved. Jesus must die. It's revealed there in the pages of Scripture, and it's rooted in the character of God, isn't it? 
I mean, how else can God be just and the justifier of the ungodly? How can God be holy and at the same time spare sinners like us? If there's any other way, don't you think God would have come up with it? But Jesus, there has to be a substitute. Jesus must die. See, the Jews believed that, that, when the, that the Messiah, when he came, that the Messiah would inflict suffering on his enemies. That's why this was so difficult for Peter, to hear about the cross. That the Jews believed that the Messiah would smash the, the enemies, that he would inflict suffering on, on his enemies. They were expecting that to happen. They weren't expecting him to take that suffering upon himself. The suffering that you and I deserve. Because we are his enemies, aren't we? Wonder, have you understood that? Is the cross a mystery to you? It's amazing how many people go to church and they never, sometimes they come to the Lord's table and they wonder what it's all about. Is the cross a mystery to you or is it a must? Have you understood why Jesus must die? If God's kingdom is to come, if you and I are to be saved, it is literally over his dead body. See, until you understand that, you, you won't, you'll never take your, your Christian life seriously. You'll never battle with your sin until you see that it's your sin that crucified him. Until you realize that those darling sins of yours are actually the weapons that murdered him. How can you, how can you cozy up to your sin your favorite sin, when that sin nailed him to the cross. Jesus must die. He must die for you if you are to be saved, if God's kingdom is to come. Jesus must die. But then so too must you. So look at verse 23. I've spoken to you about Christ and his cross. Now let me speak to you about you and your cross. You notice uh, there's a must about that as well, isn't there? Uh, see what it says whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me it, it, they must it's not an optional extra for missionaries or martyrs for super keen Christians it's a must for all would be followers of Jesus whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross someone has called this the least manipulative invitation ever given it's definitely not a crowd pleaser is it take up your cross if you saw a man carrying a cross you knew he wasn't coming back that's what it means to become a Christian you can't go back to your old life if you saw a man carrying a cross you knew he wasn't coming the cross the cross was certain death and Jesus says, if you want to be a follower of mine, then it's certain death. You will need to die to yourself. As, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, critiquing the easy believism of his day, and it's rank today, isn't it? He called it cheap grace. Remember what he said? He said, when Christ calls a man, he, he bids him come and die. Those are the terms that he lays down. You don't make... You don't make the terms. You don't call the, call the shots. He does. And he says, if you want to follow me, then this is what I require. Sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it? Sounds pretty radical. It is radical. 
Tibesa used to be so-called Christian country and we've been Christianized and, you know, so used to being culturally Christian and so on. We, we've, we've, we've papered over all this. We we're not challenged by it anymore. But it's, it is radical and it is, it is challenging. Why would anybody want to do that? To die to themselves, to give up their small ambitions and their plans for the future and hand their lives over to Jesus. Why would you want to do that? Jesus gives us three reasons here. Reason number one, there in verse 24, it's the only way to save your life. It's the only way to save your life. Look what he says. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. See, paradoxically, you, you save your life by losing it. Uh, in 1859, uh, Blondin, the famous acrobat, promised um, to pay $1,000 to anyone who was willing to let him carry them across Niagara Falls. Now, $1,000 in 1859 was a huge sum of money. And uh, apparently, uh, 100,000 people turned up to watch. Uh, none of them w would volunteer. He tried to persuade them. He tried to coax them. And then he, he did a number of uh, demonstrations. He carried a sack on his head. He rode a bike across uh, uh, the tightrope. He took a stove in a wheelbarrow and cooked an omelet halfway across. And then he came back to the crowd and he said, okay, any volunteers? Do you, do you, do you think I can do it? Any volunteers? No one put their hand up. And in the end, he, he had to persuade his manager, Harry, who was scared of heights, apparently, <laughs> to climb into the wheelbarrow. And halfway across, they began to wobble. Uh, well, actually, he was on Blondin's shoulders. And they began to wobble, and Blondin shouted out, Harry, till I clear this place, you've got to trust me. You've got to become one with me. You've got to be part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you sway with me. Don't try to save yourself. Don't attempt to balance yourself. Or we're going to both fall to our death. If you try to save your life, you, he actually said this, if you, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you surrender yourself to me, you'll be safe. Friends, that's, that's what Jesus is calling you to do. That's what he's calling for here, isn't it? That's the way he wants you to follow him. He wants you to surrender yourself to him. To trust him, to stop living independently of him, to cling to him for dear life. Are you doing that? Are you just coming to church and hanging out with your friends and doing what everybody else does? There's no difference between you and your, your uni friends. You know, not everybody goes to uni here. Yeah. <laughs> See, this, this is what faith is, and it's not something that happens in a meeting once. It's your whole lifestyle if you're a Christian. Every day you, you have to take up the cross and die to yourself. Surrender yourself to Jesus. Cling to him for dear life. That's what faith is. Reason number two is there in verse 25. And you notice there's a kind of note of pleading in this, isn't there? He's, he's actually pleading with them. He's not just giving them information here. What, what good is it, he says, for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self, their own soul? 
Surely that, that has to be a figure of speech, don't you think? I mean, how can anyone gain the whole world? Not even Elon Musk can gain the whole world, although he tries. How can anyone gain the whole world? And yet there is a sense in, in which, you know, we all live in our own little world, don't we? You go into a, any news agents and uh, don't look too carefully, but uh, if you glance at the shelves in any news agents, you'll find that. Gardeners have gardening world. <laughs> My mother used to have a magazine, I think it was called Women's Realm. That's the realm she lived in. We all have a little, every Saturday afternoon on the television, when I was growing up, there was the world, world of sport. What world do you live in? What, what, what do you live for? What if you were to gain that whole world? What if you were to gain everything you've ever dreamed of doing or being? Only to lose your own soul. You see, to, lose, you, to lose your soul is a process. It's not something that just happens like you lose your keys, your car keys, can't remember where you put them. That's not how you lose your soul. It's a process. Worldliness is soul-destroying. You can't actually gain the world, whatever world it may happen to be, you cannot gain your world without, in the process, losing yourself. Have you seen that happen to people? They kind of hollow out. And they're not them anymore. <laughs> I think that's part of what Jesus means when he talks about everlasting destruction. Haven't you seen that happen? I've seen that happen to people. You can't actually gain your world without losing your soul in the process. In 1965, Somerset Maughan, one of the most uh, famous living authors of his day, was, he was 91 years old in 1965. He was fabulously wealthy. He was living on the French Riviera. And his nephew, who must have been a Christian, I think, Robin, uh, was visiting him. And he wrote uh, a, a, an article for The Times, The London Times, published in April 1978, describing that visit to his famous uncle. I he said, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I, I remembered that the villa itself and the wonderful views of the Mediterranean was worth millions. He had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires, he dined on silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henri, his footman, but it no longer meant anything to him. That afternoon, I found him in the library, peering through his spectacles at a large print Bible. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, he said. I've come across this verse, which used to hang on my bedroom wall when I was a child. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Of course, it's a load of bunk. But the thought is quite interesting, all the same. That evening in the drawing room after dinner, he flung himself down on the sofa. Robin, he said, I'm so tired. He gave a gulp and buried his head in his hands. I've been a failure the whole way through my life. I've made mistake after mistake. I've made a hash of everything. I tried to comfort him. You're the most famous writer alive. Surely that has to count for something. 
Wish I'd never written a single word, he said. It's brought me nothing but misery. Everyone who's got to know me well has ended up hating me. My whole life has been a failure. And now it's too late. It's too late to change. It's too late. He looked up and his grip tightened on my hands. He was staring towards the floor. His face was contorted with fear. And he was trembling violently. He stared, ashen-faced, ahead of him. Suddenly he began to shriek. Go away, he cried. Go away. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. His high-pitched, terror-struck voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked around. But the room was empty as it was before. There's no one here, I said. And he began to gasp hysterically. Do you get the point? Somerset Maughan was one of the most famous and fated men of his generation. He had everything. He had it all. But when it was time for the reckoning, when it was time for him to leave this world, just as the queen has done in the last 24 hours, to meet her king, When that time came, he was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because his idols had deserted him. That's reason number two. You cannot gain your world without, in the process, losing your soul. So think about it. What is there in this world worth losing your soul for? What are your idols? What are you chasing after? What are you investing your life in? There are so many, aren't there? Your health, well, your health will fail. Your looks, your looks will fade. Can't take your money with you. There are no pockets in shrouds. You want to make a name for yourself in this world? Your reputation, people will forget about you 10 years after you're dead. You cannot gain the world without losing your soul. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from your throne and worship only thee. Reason number three, verse 26, consider the future, your future. Jesus says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's the next thing to happen on God's agenda. God's agenda is what counts. Jesus is coming back. That's the next thing. Jesus is coming back with all his holy angels. Just imagine. Remember when Daniel saw just one angel, he fell to the ground dead. Imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back with all his holy angels and his Father's glory. Now, see, now, nobody wants to know him now. We're often being told, aren't we, uh, that we're on the wrong side of history. We who believe in Jesus, we are followers of Jesus, but we're on the wrong side of history. Nobody wants to know him now, but everybody will want to know him then. Or at least, I should say this, be known by him, because that's what counts on that day when Jesus comes back. Not whether you think you know him. You sing the hymns, you say the words, 
you mix with other Christians, you look like a Christian, but that's not what matters. Not whether, what, not, not whether you think you know him, but does he know you? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. You see, that's, that's one of the problems of being a celebrity, a famous person, that everybody thinks they know you. Isn't that right? There's a word for it, I think, now. It's called um, a parasocial relationship. You know, you, you imagine that uh, because this person's on Facebook and you can, uh, can, you can uh, or tweets or whatever, and is on Instagram, you, you, you think you know that person. Think, for example, just for a silly example, take Nick uh, Kyrgios, for example. He's, he's on Facebook, I think. He tweets and he twitters. He twitters endlessly. And you could be his Facebook friend. You could perhaps even follow him on Instagram. But, but if you were to meet him in the street next week, he's likely to say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Or words to that effect. <laughs> <laughs> See, the issue is not, do you know Jesus, but does Jesus know you? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns us, not everyone who says to me, words are easy. He doesn't say, I was at a funeral recently, a lady in her 90s, she'd been a missionary in France for 25 years. She was a part of the church planting team of one of our churches, and it was on the ministry team of another church. And at her funeral, the, the, her pastor had those words, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. And it just struck me, it, it was so appropriate for her, uh, but it just struck me, the words, are, well, he, he didn't say well said, Jesus is not going to say to you, well said, so you know your stuff, you've been brought up in church and you, you know the right things to say. Now it's not what you say, it's do you walk the walk, well done, good and faithful servant. It's, many will say to me on that day, didn't we cast out demons in your name, didn't we prophesy in your name? We did. Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. What's Jesus going to say to you on that day? Will he say, come in, or will he say, go away? Will you be commended, or will you be condemned? So, so, so why follow Jesus? Openly, openly identifying with Jesus is, is costly. Nowadays, uh, as you know, the culture is more and more against us. Nowadays, to come out as a Christian, you have to die a thousand deaths, don't you? Why would you do that? Why follow Jesus? Why choose to be a loser in the eyes of the world? Because in the end, do you see what it says there in verse 26? In the end, loser takes all. This one that the world has written off is coming back. And it will be the greatest, the biggest comeback ever. He will t return with his father's glory and all his holy angels. Then who's going to be on the wrong side of history? Not you, if you're a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold the glory of the Savior and to respond to him in faith, to turn from our own self-centeredness and to embrace the claims that he has made about himself and to surrender ourselves to his will for our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes by the Holy Spirit so that we might do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.